book of Exodus. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 13. It looks like we will get done chapter 13. And then we just touch on verses 1 and 2 of 14. Just a little, little touch. Okay. Because 14's hot, man. 14, there's a lot of cool things going on in 14, and we just only get to touch on it tonight or today. Maybe she should do this for me. I don't know. Um, so Exodus chapter 13, we have Moses has already shown us uh, the Passover, um, has already gone through the uh, uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread as well as the law of the firstborn. All that speaks of God redeeming Israel, taking them out of bondage, bringing them in to uh, a place where they can worship him. Not only are you taking from something, you're always taking for something. And so when it comes to the Lord, he delivers us from the bondage of sin so we may serve him. Okay? And so we have gone over this, and that leads us to verse 17. There now, boom, we're going out now. Okay, and it says, then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So boom, they're going out. Um, God doesn't take them. Uh, by the route of the Via Maris, the way of the sea. We have a, a slide right here so you can kind of see this. This is the way of the sea right here. Um, if they started going that way, uh, it would uh, they'd come across uh, the fortresses of, of Egypt and things like that, all these fortresses, and then they would come to the land of the Philistines, and so they would have that to combat as they go into the land of Canaan. It is obviously a much more... Um, uh, closer route to kind of go this way. Um, it's a smooth road, um, and so, uh, you know, it would be easier to get there, uh, except for the fact that uh, they would probably, um, uh, Egypt wouldn't be so much of a problem as it would then come to Philist- Phil- the land of the Philistines, and then that would be kind of difficult at that point. And God is saying, you're not ready for war yet, okay? So even though this might be an easier route up into this point, he says, you're not ready for war, so I'm going to take you this way. Okay, and then we're going to see, it doesn't show it here, but this is also the way of the King's Highway. So this is the King's Highway that goes in the Mediterranean, okay? Uh, this is the King's Highway that comes this way, uh, and then this is the, the way of the sea via Maris, which is another trade route. Everything seems to happen, uh, kind of come into Megiddo over here before it goes into Damascus and this way and then down this way. So, um, so this is the way that... Uh, the Lord is, is going to take them, is going to be from here. He's going to bring them out this way. He's going to go down this way and then turn, and then he's going to come this way, as we shall see, okay, as we shall see. Um, it's interesting to me that uh, the Lord is saying, I know what dangers to bring you through. I know what difficulties to take you through and what difficulties not to take you through, okay? You're not ready for war yet, okay? But the way I am going to take you is very difficult. It's through a wilderness, and it is going to be difficult. It's interesting because the Bible tells us in Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Sometimes that word understanding can mean feelings, okay? Don't trust your feelings. Don't lean on your feelings, your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him, God, 
and he will direct your paths. Now, I would submit to you as a believer in Jesus Christ for you to grow in Christ Jesus and become Christ-like. We are told, Paul tells us that because he has suffered Jesus, we are going to have to suffer. That we grow in our understanding of God because of the difficulties that God is going to bring us through. God does not take us the easy way. And you know why? There's nothing to learn on the easy way. There's nothing to learn on the easy way. There's a reason why Jesus himself says narrow is a gate. Difficult is the way that leads uh, difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. He's speaking to believers. You've already gone through the narrow gate, but now guess what? Now that you've gone through the narrow gate, now that you receive Jesus, guess what? Your life, the journey he has before you is going to be difficult. It doesn't say miserable. Okay. It says difficult. It's going to be difficult. But going through the difficulties, God's going to come alongside. He's going to remove these obstacles. He's going to grow you, strengthen you in your faith in him. And you're going to see life get birthed out as you follow the Lord. And it's going to be amazing. And there's few who do it. Dave, doesn't everybody go through the the difficult way once they become a believer? No. They're believers, but things start to get difficult and they jump off and they quit. I don't, I, don't, I don't want, it's scary. I don't want to do that. Okay, God is still with you. He loves you, you know, but there is something there that you could have learned and, and gotten through to which God would have shown himself and you're gonna, you would have gone, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. It's easy to quit. It's not easy to persevere. And the blessings in the persevering, that's how you grow. That's how you grow. And so, God is going to bring them through the wilderness. And guess what? It's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult. But God is going to show himself. He's going to show himself. In verse 19 of chapter 13, it says, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. I love this about um, Joseph's faith. Joseph's faith We're told here that he believes in God's promises, even though he was told and he was given and he knew from his father, Jacob, that the promised land was there in Canaan. And even though he's not going to be able to live there, he understands the promise and and reminds everybody when he's dying and saying, hey, I, I believe in the promise of God. And so even though when I die, guess what? I want you to take my bones when God visits you and bring them back in the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised us. We read about that in Genesis 50, verse 24, where Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land, the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you. That's twice he says that. And you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him. And he is put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, this coffin was most likely a sarcophagus, okay? And so that is an above-ground burial chamber that's stone. Uh, And so um, he was embalmed as a reminder that this is not his home, and as a reminder that when it comes time to go, just bust a part this sarcophagus, 
take my bones, which will be in a box, and just take it with you and bury me at my family plot. And that's exactly what happens in Joshua 24, 32. It says, the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem, which is the burial plot of his family. And so he is placed there. Uh, Verse 20 of chapter 13, it says, so they took their journey from Sukkot and camped in Etham. Sukkot means booths, okay? And so uh, whether this was an actual place that people stayed uh, or they're just their first camp site that they're going to be camping outdoors, we don't really know. Um, But from that place, they went to a place called Etham at the edge of the wilderness. Well, where is Etham? Edge of what wilderness? And it doesn't mean that is the second time that they camped. It's just the next campsite that they're mentioning, okay? That's just the next campsite that they're mentioning. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And so we look at this and go, how cool. From the moment they left Egypt, you have this big cloud, this pillar of cloud, you know. And so you knew which direction to go because God is marching you in that direction. Just follow the cloud, you know. And at night, it's lit up by fire, which tells me that they probably traveled at night as well, okay. Probably traveled at night as well. And so, um, again, how cool it would be that God would manifest himself in that way. Now, we also know that, um, and we'll get into this in a little bit, but uh, that God was taking care of him along the way. We read in Psalm 105, 39, he spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night, which tells me that as they're traveling through the wilderness, in the heat of the day with the sun beating down, it wasn't beating down because the cloud was before them, but it also covered them at the same time, thus taking the edge off the fact that the heat might be, the sun might be beating down on their heads. They have the cloud for a covering. Um, and I, I think about this, and sometimes I'm thinking, that, that would have been really cool to see, you know. As a believer in, in God, it would have just been awesome to know that and, and to be able to see that cloud so you know what direction to go. Wouldn't you like that as a believer in Jesus Christ that you would always know what direction to go because you had a cloud to follow, you know? And then you'd be pretty obvious to, you know, recognize believers. Just look for the cloudy people, all right? And so they're following their own cloud and and things like that. How cool that would be. I'm here to tell you something. You have something better. He's called the Holy Spirit. And even though they had the, the presence of God outside, we have the presence of God inside us. When you receive Jesus Christ, I want you to go to John 14. The Holy Spirit is to lead and guide you. And so here in John chapter 14, starting in verse 15, it says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I'll pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he might abide with you forever. Well, who's the helper? Well, if you just look down to verse 26... But the helper, the Holy Spirit. So we know who the helper is, okay? He will give you another helper. That's the Holy Spirit. And he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, 
But you know him, for he dwells with you, meaning right now, at the time when Jesus was saying that, but he also says this, and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So when Jesus dies and goes to the right hand of the Father, the Holy Spirit is now available. And not only is the Holy Spirit with everyone, he will be inside of those who receive Jesus. In Ephesians 1, verse 12, it says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So now when you receive Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us. Jesus says you will know them by their fruits. Because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you should be producing the fruits of the Spirit. And as much as it would be easy, if if we still have the cloud to follow, we would know who the cloudy people are because, you know, they have the cloud in front of them. And at night, they have the cloud above them, you know, with the fire and everything else. How easy it would be able to identify a believer. It should be just as easy to identify a believer today because they're producing the fruits of the Spirit. But yet I would say sometimes it's difficult to be able to see or determine if someone's a believer because you don't see that fruit, but you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You can have that fruit. You can have that fruit. Quick little rabbit trail, okay. I didn't do this the other two services. Um, But I would say this, something that um, I've been much more intentional doing the last six months, and it's just bearing tremendous fruit. And that is um, trying to remember, and God is, is, is uh, always stirring my heart, so if I forgot that the next time the server comes to ask how the food is, then I'll ask him if there's something I could pray for. But we're asking our server every time we go out to lunch or dinner or whatever, just saying, hey, what's your name? And hey, we're about to pray for our food, and we would like to pray for you. So what can we pray for you about? And I'm telling you, the fruit has been amazing has been absolutely amazing. And since I've been sharing that, you know, uh, every couple weeks or so and, and, and been asking you guys to do the same thing, it's wonderful to have you come up to me and say, we did this the other night and this is what happened. And, you know, I got to give him a church card and invite him to church you know, or whatever it might be. It is so cool to see your eyes light up and be able to say, Dave, it was such an open door. It was such a cool open door. You, you wouldn't believe it. I would believe it. Because we've been doing it, and it's been amazing. And I'm just asking you to really step out on faith. And when you're out, just ask the server their name and say, hey, we're about to pray for our food. What can we pray for you about? Watch the doors open. And I personally haven't yet had somebody say to me, yeah, I don't want you to pray for me. I haven't had that. I've had one guy who said, you know, I'm a little taken back. I, I don't know what you should pray for me about. And I said, I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to pray that today in your shift, you'll have great tips. And you go, oh yeah, pray for that. <laughs> so I do, the, the moment I say amen and he leaves, I get a tap on the shoulder. And this other guy comes up who is a server at another table and he said, could you pray for my mom? She just, we just found out she has cancer. I said, no, I only pray for one server at a time. I, sorry, we're, we're on a... Time think. No. It's like, absolutely, let's pray. Are you kidding me? You overheard and you came over? 
Wow, the fruit of that is amazing. And just from our fellowship alone, in the three services that we have, if just half of you did that in Castle Rock, can you imagine the impact that would have on all the servers of the different restaurants? You would know, you would know because you would ask for some prayer and they go, oh, this is great. This is the second time today that someone's asked me that. This is the second, third time this week that someone's asked, what church do you guys go to? It's like the witness that is there for Christ. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. They will know you by your fruits. It's a great way to be able to show the fruit of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And so, so again, in, and if you go over here to John chapter 16, verse 7, just scoot over to the right there a little bit from chapter 14. In verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Go down to verse 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you. God has always been into guiding us. But now he is inside of us and he will guide you into all truth. And he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. He will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And I'm here to say, and he does that through prayer. He'll do that, meditate on him through the word of God. Through the word of God. We, we read in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. If you go to Israel with us, they, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of times as a souvenir, you'll get a little, um, uh, little clay lamp. You know, it kind of fits in the palm of your hand, not my whole hand, but just the palm of my hand with a little wick sticking out and a place you can put oil and, and light it. If you were able to get in a pitch dark room and light that, you would see, you, you'd put it out like that, so you see the edge of your toes at that point and be able to see the next step you're able to take. It only provides enough light to take the next step. And I, I'm here to tell you that is what my walk with the Lord has always been. It has been, Dave, I want you to do this. Okay, then what? Crickets, crickets. Lord, wh- wh- then after that? Oh, right, I got to take that step first before you tell me the next step. And that's what my walk has always been like. It's like, do this. And once I do that, okay, now do this. Now do this, now do that. I have never been one, and I'm not saying that God doesn't, you know, give you the full vision or whatever, steps A to Z. He seems to do that with my father-in-law, you know, which is awesome that he has that kind of vision. I don't, you know, for whatever reason, God just says, this is the next step, this is the next step. And when I faithfully do that, he shows me the next step. That's the way he does it with me. I think that's what he does with normal Christians, um, My father-in-law can say, you know, Mary had a little lamb and a hundred of you would recommit your lives to the Lord. He's that kind of evangelist. He has amazing vision. It's just like, it's crazy what, what the Lord has shown him. But for me, I just, it's usually that, that lamp thing that you just take one step at a time. Just be faithful what he's told you to do, you know, and then he'll show you the next step. And he's there to guide you. He wants to guide you and he does it through the Holy Spirit. Um, here in uh, Exodus 14, verse 1. It says, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before uh, Pihakarot. And it means mouth of the caverns or mouth of the gorges. And so 
You're going to camp there between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon, you shall camp before the sea. And so, again, here are the meanings of these words. Migdal means tower or fortress. Um, these are going to be clues of the exodus route, okay? But notice what it says there in verse 2. You're going to make a turn. So remember where they were before here. In Exodus 13, verse 20, they're at Etham, at the edge of the wilderness. They're going to make a turn and go towards this place right here, okay? Which means mouth of the caverns or mouth of the gorges. And there's also, you're going to camp between a place that is a tower or a fortress and the sea, okay? Um, and then Baal Zephon um, could mean Lord of the North or it could just mean Lord of Zephon. And that seems more likely to me, and we'll get more into that later, next time. Um, now, we have a few places that are mentioned here um, that are kind of clues of the Exodus route. But before we get into that, the exact, uh, the exact route of the Exodus, a lot has to do with the term Red Sea, okay? Does it mean Red Sea? Does it mean uh, uh, Sea of Reeds? Um, what is the meaning here? Well, the Hebrew term is Yom Suf, okay, is Yom Suf. And so when you look at a map of Egypt and the Middle East, you'll find that the Red Sea actually forks into two bodies of water. Um, it looks like if you put your fingers up like the peace sign or whatever, it's kind of like this is the Gulf of Suez, this is the, the uh, Gulf of Aqaba, and then your forearm is the Red Sea, and in between is Sinai, okay? That's where Sinai Peninsula is. And so if you look at the, at the back of your Bible, front of your Bible, whatever has maps, go to the Exodus route, okay? And you're probably going to see this right here or something close thereof, all right? They actually see the Red Sea crossing being the, the Sea of Reeds crossing um, up here, okay? Now remember, this is Goshen right here. So they're kind of going just kind of right over here to where they say Sukkoth is and and they're crossing this way, or they have it crossing over the Bitter Lakes right here. Now, why would uh, Pharaoh cross here when he could just kind of go through here, or just go around here a couple miles, avoid this, this water at all costs, you know? Um, but they, they either have uh, the, the, the Sea of Reeds crossing right here across the Bitter Lakes, or up at a lake up here, or one of these smaller lakes, or in between where it's kind of a river, uh, but they have it going through this direction and then back down here to Mount Sinai and then kind of coming up this way at the tip of Aqaba and then going this way, which we kind of all agree kind of takes place at this point, the wanderings and all that kind of fun stuff, okay? Um, I would guarantee your Bible doesn't have anything of, of them coming through here and then going down this way and then going across uh, the Gulf of Aqaba around here to get to Midian. Does anybody have that in their Bible, that it actually is crossing there in the Gulf of Aqaba? Anybody? <laughs> Proving my point. And so this has been the tradition, that the, the Red Sea crossing was right through here. It was through all these freshwater lakes and, and things like that. And there's a reason why they, they're, they're looking for it there. There's a reason why they think it's that, that would be the place and, and stuff like that. Um, I don't think it's a really good reason, but I want you to be able to see by doing that and, um, that, and going down here and saying this is where Mount Sinai is, I, I think you have a problem. I think you have a problem. So um, let's keep this map up here, but do me a favor. I want you to go to Galatians chapter 4. Okay, Galatians chapter 4. 
This is Paul speaking, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, from the stock of Benjamin. He is raised above his contemporaries, being that Pharisee of a Pharisee. I would submit to you, he knows Hebrew. I would submit to you, he also knows Greek. I would submit to you, no, he knows the history of Israel. And being that he's spoken and it's been written down through the Holy Spirit, I would say to you that what he says here is true. So, verse 21, we're going to be talking about the two covenants and what they symbolize. It says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, who would that be? Hagar, Hagar, and one by the free woman, Sarah. Hagar was bought in Egypt, was a maidservant, so the bondwoman would be Hagar and the free woman would be Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman, who did the bondwoman give birth to? Ishmael, okay, and was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. Who's that? Isaac, Isaac which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to the bonded, which is Hagar, meaning the law. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in, where? Arabia. That's over here, by the way. This is all Arabia on the other side of Midian, which is on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba. This has never been Arabia. This has always been Egyptian ever since the first dynasty, 3100 BC. It's never been Arabia. It's never been Arabia. So Mount Sinai can't be there. And the Bible says, over here somewhere. Right over there, Arabia. Okay? And they think they might have found it right about there. Right below the M. I don't know. I just say. But it's around that area right there. Okay. So again, the area that we see here that most people go to is the place called Bitter Lakes. Now, now, why would they do that? Well, there is a reason, and we're going to see that here in a moment. But the majority of modern scholars would tell you that the greatest mistranslation of the Bible is the Red Sea. The correct translation would say is not the Red Sea. It's supposed to be the Reed Sea. Moses and the Israelites did not cross the Red Sea. They crossed the Sea of Reeds, is which they would say, inland lakes filled with reeds, okay? Now, uh, the Hebrew words in the Old Testament that are translated Red Sea, okay? Let's kind of look at the very first time this is mentioned here, Red Sea. And uh, the word red, the Hebrew word there is suf, but it's not. This word has absolutely no meaning. It has no etymology. Nobody knows where this word came from, okay? Some think it's an Egyptian word, and it might be. And so the Egyptian or the Hebrew way of saying suf, okay, the Hebrew way of saying this, all right, is it would be suf, but it's an Egyptian word, okay? The Hebrew word, it's interesting here, because the Hebrew word for red, we already know, it's Edom. That's the Hebrew word for red. Another Hebrew word for red is, is Admoni, which means the color red. 
okay? But red earth is Edom, all right? And so there are two words right there for red. Suf is not one of them. As a matter of fact, they don't even really know where it comes from. They think it is an Egyptian word. So if they're going to pronounce the Egyptian word and spell it in Hebrew, it would be suf, okay? Uh, The word sea here in the Hebrew, yom, yom, means sea. The word sea can either be a large body of water that's either fresh or salt. Hence the sea of Galilee, which is a very big, fresh body of water. And so it has the word yom to a sea of Galilee, even though it's fresh water. Now, those who translate it reads is because of what they read in Exodus chapter 2. So just go over to Exodus chapter 2. Remember the birth of Moses, starting in verse 3 here. It says, But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, laid it in the reeds by the river bank. The word reeds there, suf. Laid it in the suf by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the suf, she sent her maid to get it. So here in verse 3 and 5, The word suf is there, and so they believe it means reeds, okay? It's interesting to me here that the word suf is never used for reeds again in the Old Testament, okay? It's never used for reeds again. As a matter of fact, the only time suf is used is when it's being said uh, Red Sea in the Old Testament. You know, yam suf is what it says. But where it's speaking specifically of reeds, that's the only place that word suf is used, we see the word reeds used seven other times in the Old Testament. Job 8.11, Job 40, verse 21, Psalm 68, verse 30, Isaiah 19, verse 6 and 7, Isaiah 35, verse 7, Jeremiah 51, verse 32. Never is the word suf used. We have other words. Aku means reed, marsh plants, rushes. We have kane means stalk, cane, reed. We have ara, which means paper reed, which is probably papyrus, okay, which they make paper from, and agam which means swampy marsh. All speak of marshy grasses or plants or paper reeds or cane stalks around a fresh body of water, okay? Now, if suf was an actual Hebrew word that meant reeds, why is it never used again when reeds is, is being in part of the description of whatever it is you're trying to say? I find that interesting, Okay. But because they translated to mean reeds, this is why so many have accepted that it could only happen around the Sea of Reeds. It couldn't have happened at the Gulf of Aqaba or the Gulf of Suez because that's salt water and reeds do not grow in salt water. So right there, they just take away the fact that it could possibly be those things. And so Yom Suf therefore must refer to an inland freshwater lake with reeds. Okay, and so there are four lakes as well as the bitter lakes that are around that area that I showed you before. All these contain reeds, and so they're looking for uh, the crossing of the Red Sea happening about in that place. There is no evidence whatsoever, but that's where they still look, even to this day, and because they believe Yamsuf means Sea of Reeds or the Reed Sea. Now let's look at a few things. In description 
of the Red Sea crossing or just talking about the Red Sea. We come across biblical terms describing Yom Suf, the Red Sea, okay? We see it's spoken of in the way of strength in Exodus 14.27. The, the Hebrew word is Atan. We also see uh, um, when it comes in describing the Red Sea, how deep it is to home. We also see it being spoken of as this is a mighty sea, a deer. We see deeps, plural. So there's a lot of deep places inside this, um, uh, this body of water, Metzala. And then we see mighty, again, uh, as, described mighty a little differently, but it's the, it's the word as. And then we see depths, plural, ma amakim. And then we see great depths, rav tahom. And then we see roaring, okay, hama. We see roaring. So when describing the Red Sea, it has roaring waves that crash upon the shoreline there. In Exodus 14, 27, it says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the morning appeared and the sea returned to its full depth. And while the Egyptians were fleeing into it, the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And so full depth, you know, um, 15 verse eight, and with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood up like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. 15.10 says, you blew with your wind and the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Isaiah 51.15, but I am the Lord your God who divides the sea whose waves roared. And also in Exodus 14.22, when they're crossing, when the children of Israel are crossing, it says, so the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the word wall there is homa. It means wall of a strong city. It's a city that has a wall of protection around it. And usually a city with a high wall around it is anywhere from 30 to 80 feet. That's a big wall of water on both sides. Very difficult to do in a shallow lake to have that. You have great depths, waves that roar on its shores, mighty waters, large walls of waters on both sides. This is not the language of a shallow body of water, which all those are with the bitter lakes and, and all those. They're very shallow. Um, some of uh, the marshy areas that they suggest they went through was ankle-deep water, you know. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I get that this whole thing is a miracle and God could do anything, but for him to part shallow waters and drown the Egyptian army in ankle-deep water, that, that is a miracle. I, I will grant you that. I will grant you that, okay? Um, but it, it doesn't seem like the description, when you read other accounts of the description of the Red Sea, how mighty and depths, plural, it's deep and not as deep in other places, but then deep again and, and uh, how mighty and big and ominous it is, it does not describe any of those smaller bodies of water um, over by the Bitter Lakes and, and right above the, the Gulf of Suez. And so personally, when I read that, I, I just discount that. It can't be that area. Now, how did Yom Suf, if it really means Sea of Reeds, how did it get translated to the Red Sea in our English Bible? Did it say that in the Latin Bible before us? Did it say that in the Bible before that, the translation before that? What about in the Greek? What does it say in the Greek? Which is a great 
question, which is a great question. The Septuagint, which means 70, comes from the legend that 72 Jewish interpreters, scholars, six from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, translated the Hebrew scriptures from Hebrew into the Greek in 70 days. So the Septuagint is the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek, okay? Why would they do that? Because at the time when that happened, 300 years before Christ, the time that that was happening, the majority of Jews only spoke Greek. They had been Hellenized by Greek society before that. And so they, 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 most of them only spoke Greek. They didn't even speak Hebrew. And so in order for the religious leaders to be able to bring the, the Holy Scriptures to them, they decided to translate it into the language that they would understand, which was Greek, which was Greek. Um, the scholars lived in Alexandria, in Egypt. Alexandria is on the coast of Egypt, on the western side of the Nile Delta, whereas Ramesses or Averis, the place that Israel started their journey out of Egypt, is on the eastern side of the Nile Delta. Now, in the Septuagint, um, they translate, translated Yon Suf to mean Red Sea. Remember, 72 Jewish scholars who understand the meaning of Yom Suf. So why would they translate the Sea of Reeds or the Reed Sea? Why would they translate into the Greek to mean Red Sea? They knew where the Reedy Lakes were, the Bitter Lakes, the other lakes that were only about 140 miles from Alexandria. Alexandria was a major center for scholars, a major think tank, uh, think tank for a time. Why would they prefer to translate that Red Sea instead of the Sea of of reeds. When you read in the New Testament here, in Acts 7, verse 35 and 36, it says, and, and, and this Stephen, given the history of the Jews, says, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge, is the one God sent to be ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush, Yahweh. And he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt in the Red Sea, in the wilderness 40 years, Red Sea, in the Greek, Euruthros Thalassa. What does Euruthros mean? Red. What does Thalassa mean? Sea. It means sea, and it means red. Hebrews eleven twenty nine. by faith, they pass through the Red Sea, Euruthros Thalassa, as by dry land. Again, why did the, the uh, Hebrew scholars, who also knew Greek, why would they translate that into Red Sea? Unless they knew something. And they knew where the crossing was, and it was at the Red Sea. It was not the Sea of Reeds, and they didn't want to confuse anyone. They didn't want to do that. And so when it got translated into Latin Vulgate, it was... It was Mar rubrum, which means Red Sea. And then from the Latin into English, Red Sea. And so all these translators follow the lead of the Septuagint, who are Jewish scholars. They were Jews. They were Jews. So the Jewish tradition from the 3rd century B.C. on and the early Christian tradition from the 1st century A.D. onwards have consistently interpreted Yom Suf as Red Sea, not Sea of Reeds or the, or, or the Reed Sea. 
So if you go back to the first century AD, ask any Jew, ask any Christian walking around at that time, ask Peter, ask Paul, whoever you want to ask and talk to there, and you ask them, where did Israel cross over? They would have said the Red Sea. They would not have said Yom Suf, the Reed Sea. Now, several Old Testament verses attach Yom Suf to the Gulf of Aqaba. In Exodus 23, verse 28, And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite before you. And I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate, and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the Sea Felicia and from the desert to the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. So we have this slide right here. This is, um, this is okay, remember what it says here. I will set your bounds from the Red Sea okay, right down here, <clears throat> to the Sea of Felicia, which is the Mediterranean, okay? This is the, the southernmost part of Philistine, okay? Uh, of the Ph- land of the Philistines is right here. So you draw a line directly from there to the Red Sea. It ain't going that direction to the Suez, okay? And I'll tell you why. Because God says he's going to remove who? The Canaanites. Where do they live? In Cana. The Hivites. The Hittites, where do they live? Up here in Canaan, which is the promised land. And so he's not removing them backwards this way, which is Egyptian. Not that they aren't going to have some wanderers from Midian and others that are there. But he mentions specifically those that aren't there, the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Hivites, which are all up in this northern area from this southern border. He says, this is your southern border for Felicia which is the Mediterranean, all the way to the Red Sea. Well, that's the closest point to the Red Sea right there. And that is the southern border of Israel as it goes this way, okay? Now, we read in Numbers 21, verse 4, and they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of Yom Suf, Red Sea, and to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Deuteronomy 2.1, then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness of the way of Yom Suf. As the Lord spoke to me, we skirted Mount Seir many days. 1 Kings 9.26, King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Alath on the shore of Yom Suf, the Red Sea. In the land where? Edom. Now, look at this right here. Look at this next one. So, here you have Ezon uh, Geber right here. Here's Mount Seir over here. You're in the land of Edom right here. They think Mount Hor is either here or here or here. I've seen three different places, but it's up in the land of Edom. On, in the land of Edom by where? Yom Suf, Red Sea. Well, this area here is not near there, Gulf of Suez. This area here is not near over here. This area here is not near there. 
Bitter Lakes, all that freshwater air right there. This area here seems pretty near to here. Yom Suf. He has a fleet of ships that Solomon made. On the Red Sea, in the land of Edom. That's right here. This is the land of Edom. This is not Edom over here. This is not Edom over here. It's not Edom over anywhere over here. There's only one place that could be, and that's the Gulf of Aqaba. That's the only place it could be. Now, I want to show you something else here, too. This next slide here is pretty cool as well. So, um, next time we get together and talk about uh, Exodus, this is the route that I believe that they took, was right through here. Remember, they're at Etham, and then they turn down here to Pi Ha'arot, right here. And that ends up being um, where the beach of Nueva, Nueva Beach is there. And patterns of evidence, as well as um, the case for the Exodus, as well as uh, Glenn Fritz and everything that he's written and others have written, are able to be able to track this. And, and so here are the um, major uh, arguments against it, okay? This is about 250 miles to here, okay? They would need to cover that in about three weeks, Okay. And, um, and so a lot of them will say, how are you going to get 2 million people, 250 miles during this time right here? Well, Jacob, um, when he left Laban and went back to uh, where his mom and dad were in Canaan, that was 350 miles, and he did that, I think, in 15 days. And he had all sorts of herds and, and things like that as well. Um, Okay, so where are they getting all this water to drink with all their animals and stuff like that? How is that? You'll notice that as we go through this, these areas are, are wadis. There's, there's a road that goes through here, and so there's wadis along the way, and wadis are valleys that collect water when it rains in these mountain peaks here, and they all go this way. They all go this way from, from these mountain peaks here and along the side. They all start heading down this way. Um, the mountain peaks here are 8,500 uh, uh, feet tall. I mean, they're pretty big. And so, um, so again, uh, this is in the springtime when it's raining, and not to mention the fact that we're going to be able to read a verse, I think it's in uh, Psalm 67, 67 or 68, that God caused the rain to fall upon them in the wilderness. Why? So they have all this water to water their animals along the way. Dave, in order to get all those people, 2 million people, 250 miles within three weeks, that would take a miracle. Huh. Seems to me, as we've been watching what God has been doing up to this point, he's a God of miracles. And this is exactly what he does. Why would you think he would do it through, uh, through other ways, you know, that it was going to be some nice little, you, you know, um, moving stairs that they got on? And just kind of took him to that place. Although that would be a cool miracle as well if he did that. But it's kind of like, because it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult. They're going to have to trust him. They're going to have to cry out to him. They're going to have to wait on him. You know, Moses is going, I, 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 came, uh, I came this way. You know, I came, kind of came this way. But God's showing him a different way. And he's got to follow the Lord. He's not going to, he's not going to um, uh, go back the way that he came. He is going to go where the pillar of cloud is leading him. So we got all sorts of fun, exciting things to be able to go through the next time that we get together. So let's pray. 